Triple Crown for Wales and a walk down memory lane in this week's Welsh Rugby Union podcast. We'll hear about the part Wales is playing in one of the biggest collections of English rugby memorabilia and what to do with the jerseys on your clubhouse walls later on the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. But of course, we'll start with the aftermath of that Triple Crown win against England in Cardiff. A record score for Wales against England in a pretty remarkable game. Backs coach Stephen Jones looked forward to Italy next, reflected on the England win, but started by talking about the injuries, especially to scrum half Kieran Hardy. For Kieran, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, you know, um, after having a wonderful performance against England, you know, he's picked up a hamstring injury and he's uh, unavailable for the rest of the tournament. Where that leaves us with scrum halves is simple. We've got three left uh, in the squad. We're good to go. Thomas Williams back and fighting fit then? Yeah, yeah. He's ticking boxes as well, which is great. And taking part in training, so that's great for us. How much of a blow is it for Kieran personally, having really made a, a breakthrough this season? Oh, it's unfortunate for Kieran. You know, he's worked uh, particularly hard on his game to improve aspects and, you know, He's a very fit guy. He works hard on his fitness. He would want to pride there. I want to be thought his performance was excellent on, on the weekend. And it's uh, unfortunate for him that he's not in a position to be able to back that up. Dan Bigger also looked to be limping when he went off last weekend. What's the news on him? He's got an injury that he's, he's nursing, but we're, we're very optimistic for uh, next week. Welsh public have probably already put a tick in the box against the Italy game. How do you in the camp guard against any complacency? Well, it's very simple because, uh, one, we respect Italy, we respect the players they have, the coaching group they have, the very physical outfit. And also from my own individual perspective, you know, we've got a lot to improve on from our attacking game. We've got to make sure we're more efficient, move the ball in a better manner. So I've got lots of things that I need to improve on. So it's, uh, it's very simple. We've got to get our own house in order. Ten tries in the bag in three games. That must suggest that things are moving in the right direction, though, even for a perfectionist such as yourself. Obviously, we're you know happy to be scoring tries, but it's aspects of our game where we should be asking more questions. We've got to make sure that you know we keep working hard, you know, to get ourselves set quickly, but also you know to make sure our scanning's better. You know, we've got to be making sure we choose the correct side to attack on more occasions, and there's lots of aspects that we've got to improve on not giving England line-outs, looking at the speed they regroup. How much was it good analysis, taking advantage of, of things you spotted and going through the tapes? Certain aspects of our attacking game I was happy with, but we we have got improvements we've got to make. It's as simple as that. So you look at the game, just look at the last 20 minutes. It was 24-all for us to score 16 points in that last 20 minutes. That was good game management from the boys. So we were ball tough. Our efficiency at the contact area was good which allowed us to uh, sort of control that last period of the game, which was very, very important. And the rest of the match, was that stuff that you'd planned, the early moments, first half? Well, there's certain things, uh, you always look at your your shape, are you implementing that? Obviously, I give the English defence credit, hugely physical and their ability to repeat sets was good, but we did have some joy in the edges, some good ball movement from our boys there, but... Did we capitalise on after having some good yards down the edge? No, you know, we've we got to be better. So uh, we're work in progress, simple as. Where does that sit in terms of wins uh, against England? You know, there's been a few crackers which we could name, but it, it was a funny one. And given all the circumstances, everything you've been through as a team in, over the last year as well. Uh, obviously, we were delighted with the victory to win the game and for there to be a triple crown mistake. That was huge for us as a group. But we don't get 
too carried away because ultimately it's another test match around the corner and, and we've got lots of things to work on. So it's as simple as really for my own perspective. In the Autumn Internationals, you blooded a lot of young players. How pleased were you particularly with them? Because that was a lot of pressure on some of those shoulders, wasn't it? Yeah, they've been excellent. We exposed, obviously, Kieran Hardy in the autumn, Callum Sheedy, Johnny Williams, Louis uh, uh, Zamet, uh, both of them. So, you know, we exposed a lot of guys there. And, uh, you know, the way they've coped, you know, you look at Callum, uh, we came onto the park, composure was excellent. You know, Kieran obviously started the game, how he managed the game. You always look how people cope in their sort of pressure situation. And, like, when Kieran had one kick charge down from Itoji, didn't fluster him, stuck to his process. And that's what you want, isn't it? The guys have belief in their own ability and belief in the system. From your experiences of 05 and 08, what were your particular memories of those and how you kind of navigated the final two ones? We went up to Scotland, was uh, the penultimate game in 05. But it's about winning, it's about momentum, it's about making sure you get better. You improve your performance. You're so focused on making sure, you, as a player, you're getting your own individual role right that you're not taking your eye off the ball. Otherwise, you won't nail your performance. It's as simple as that. Where do you think the balance lies at the moment? Some of the tries you've scored look like they're quite opportunistic tries. And, you know, you look at the individual brilliance of someone like Louis Rees-Samit. I get the impression from what you've said, you're perhaps not breaking down teams systematically quite the way you would like yet. Well... It's interesting how you will is systematic being going through the phases or do you mean becoming more potent at the start? Do you mean it's interesting how you look at it, isn't it? You want to make sure you've got both strings to your bow, really, in the sense you can work teams through multi-phase, but also if you can do it early in the set, you do it early in the set, and that's always going to be the challenge. An interesting insight. One of the Wales players who's slipped under the radar a little bit, but for whom this successful campaign has been just the latest chapter in his international career, is prop Rodri Jones, back on the loose head side after a period on the tight head. It's been great to be back in the mix, so I've really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, it's been good. What did you do to get back in that mix after a couple of years out then? Well, I just kept my head down, trained hard, and obviously and I thought I'd been playing quite well recently, so obviously been uh, rewarded for, for that. So, Doing anything differently? No, nothing, nothing different. No, obviously, changed position, and then that took a bit of time to get used to. And then, yeah, I just think I've been gaining confidence as I've been playing. So um, for me, that's a big thing, and I feel more confident now. And I think it's showing the way I play. What about that uh, change back to uh, where it all started for you, really, across the scrum? Alan Clark spoke to me when I was at the Ospreys, and then he thought it'd be better for me to move back. So. Um, Really grateful for that decision, really, because I think it just comes more natural to me and I feel like it's been a good decision. For those who aren't versed in the technicalities of the uh, front row, how much difference does that make to the role you play in a game, playing loose head rather than tight head? I don't know, just for me, I, I just found it difficult. And then it started off well and then over the years, I think I wasn't getting any better, well, probably wasn't progressing the way I wanted to. And then I probably got a bit bogged down by a bit, probably feeling a bit negative and everything. So um, really, I just find playing the loose head a lot more natural. And then it's just so I can concentrate on the rest of my game then. I found I was just focused on scrum part of the game. There's a lot more than that in the game, isn't there? So um, as a loose head, I can work on my other aspects of my game. What about um, the challenge ahead of you now, uh, Italy, aside that in the past have been quite dominant up front at times. How do you rate them 
this year, given they've been on the wrong end of the results? Yeah, obviously they've had a tough time uh, in recent games, but I think most of the games they started well. So obviously we need to start well ourselves and then we need to build from there. So we're not taking them lightly at all. So um, we just got to start well and keep the pressure on. What do you make of their strategy of not necessarily starting with their strongest props, meaning that their uh, better players might be on in the, the second half and you might be facing, if you're on the bench again, what do you make of that strategy? Well, it's interesting. I haven't looked that much into them yet, but obviously it's a ploy. Some teams use to try and finish strong, but whoever will be scrummaging against, I'm sure they'll, they'll all be pretty strong. So um, looking forward to the challenge if selected. I've spoken quite a lot over the years about moving from loose head to tight head, and at the time it's always seemed quite a logical move for you to make. But looking back, maybe that versatility has harmed you, do you think? I don't think it's harm, you know. I don't think I've been going from one to the other. I've either been one or I've been the other. So um, now I'm back as a loose head. I just want to be considered as a, I'm a, I'm a loose head. That's all I'm considered as. So um, I was very fortunate to play 17 games as a tight head. So um, you don't know, that might not have happened before otherwise. So um, yeah, I don't know regrets. I just want to look forward now and, and just do my best on the loose head. And does loose head feel the natural position for you? Is what you, you did? growing up, coming up through the ranks. So is that an easier adjustment for you to make? Yeah, I just find I'm more comfortable in that position. And like I said, I, then I can focus on other areas of my game and try and improve myself as a rugby player, which um, we all want to be better rugby players. And like a scrum is a big part of the game, but it's also it's a quite a small part as well. Like there's not as many scrums, especially probably in international rugby. This year marks 10 years since you made your Wales debut What's the difference between that 19-year-old compared to now? I think I'm a lot more mature now. Obviously, I've grown up a bit, so um, obviously more experience and all that. So back then, I'd probably just run around and just try and get as much work done as possible. But now, try and get in the best positions and try and make the most of every aspect. If it's a carry or a tackle, I try and get the most out of that instead of just running around. How was it for you beating the old enemy, as we say? It was great, to be honest. It was the first time I've ever beaten England. I've played them a few times since, even under-16s to under-20s, I never beaten them. And then to win the Triple Crown as well at the end, it was great. The boys were all commenting on how uh, I couldn't stop smiling. So even though I only played 20 minutes, I felt it, was, it was great. So I really thoroughly enjoyed it. You're listening to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. Now something a little bit different and a little bit special on the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. A chance to wander down memory lane, but also a chance to bring it right up to date and find out what you could do with any rugby memorabilia, whether it's in your attic or your clubhouse wall. One of the biggest and best collections of English rugby memorabilia is to go on sale in Cardiff next month. To find out more, here's Ben Rogers-Jones of the Rogers-Jones Auction House, international auctioneer Richard Madley and rugby historian Rob Cole. There's been a very exciting find in a very unusual way of some uh, long-standing and very important rugby memorabilia. Now, the fact it's from one of the greatest sporting families in England might seem a bit strange, but it's actually going up for sale in Wales at what has become the world-leading rugby and sporting memorabilia sale house auction room in the world. So Rogers and Jones and Company in uh, the Landock Industrial Estate of Panath Road has built up this global reputation based more recently on the sale of the 
1905 All Blacks captain Dave Gallagher's shirt for £180,000. And lots of good items now come their way. And the latest haul is from the Burkett family. Who they, I hear people say? Well, they are a remarkable family that starts with Reg Burkett, who played for England at uh, rugby in the first game of international rugby in Scotland, scored England's first try, played football for England, won an FA Cup final winner's medal for Clapham Rovers, was on the first RFU committee, sat on a special subcommittee to form the rules for the first FA Cup And so it goes on. His brother, Louis, played rugby for England with his uh, elder brother. And then Reggie's son, John Burkett, whose memorabilia forms the biggest part of what's going to go on sale in April, just played a mere 21 record times for England and scored a record 10 uh, tries. So they're an incredible family. Oh, and Gerard, John's brother, played for Harlequins and was the first secretary of the Army Rugby Union. Owen Lewis, sorry, his, uh, his brother who played for England as well, was on the RFU committee too. So wherever you look in the early parts of, of English rugby history and English sporting history, the Burkett family rears its head. So I was portraying it before the Wales-England game that it was the first victory for Wales. Rogers, Jones and co had beaten all the auction houses in, uh, in England. So we had one nil up before we went on and beat the England rugby team last weekend. The interesting part of the story comes from uh, Richard here, whose uh, reputation uh, as a sort of international auctioneer goes before him, in how he found it and how long he's been waiting to bring it to market. So maybe this is a place to bring Richard in. It was in a, a farmhouse in Wiltshire about six years ago when I was doing a routine valuation and I was up in the bathroom when the, the nice lady who owned the property and was thinking about downsizing said, were I interested in, in rugby? And I said, well, yes, of course, I'm a Welshman. I'm bound to be interested in rugby. She said, well, she said, it's rugby memorabilia. I said, even better. What have you got? Whereupon she opened the doors of the airing cupboard. She had twin doors, a large, almost walk-in airing cupboard. And there, laid out on the shelves, were Harlequin shirts, England rugby shirts, school shirts, badges, caps, scrapbooks, autograph, photograph albums. It was a treasure trove of truly vintage rugby memorabilia. How did you come across this? I, I said. She said, Well, it's 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 in the family. This is my father's, my grandfather's, and my great grandfather's rugby collection. Well, yeah, obviously I was very excited, uh, and, and I said to her, I, I would love to handle the sale. Well, would you take it away then, Richard, and, and, and sell it for me? And I said, Of course I will. So I loaded it up into my car and I drove back unpacked it and, and went through it overnight and was thinking, my goodness me, this must be one of the best rugby collections to have come on the market for many, many years, because to find it in such good condition of an age whereby things don't survive. Whereupon the next morning I packed it up, took it back to my office and the phone went, Mr. Badley. I said, yes. He said, it's Peter here. You were with my mum last night. You've got our rugby collection. That was left to me and my brother, Mark, 
Mum had no right in giving it away. So I took it back and I said to them, look, if at some stage in the future you ever want to talk about bringing this collection to the market, I think I know the right way of doing it and I know the right man who can help us do it. And fast forward now to January this year, I got the phone call from the Evans brothers. We'd like to go to the market. Loaded up my car, this time with their permission, brought it back to Wales to be sold, which, which I think they were slightly surprised about. But I explained to them that now the centre for the sale of rugby memorabilia internationally is not in London or Paris or Auckland. It's in Cardiff, where Rogers Jones and company have, have established a reputation as being the market leaders. And that is where a collection like this deserves to be taken. Ben, just explain how you're now in the position that you are with all this. A good track record, really, which started with the Gallo jersey in 2015. That was brought to us in a, in a very humble start with an old lady in a plastic bag and, and she um, got it out of the plastic bag and we worked out that it was Dave Gallagher. It had been valued by somebody else at 15000 but I thought, well, a standard original all black jersey would make that price. But the captain, Dave Gallagher, is such a, a legend, a father figure of rugby, really, that he was going to make a lot more. And it did. I mean, it was staggering how much it made. 180,000. And then it just, the rugby part of our business just snowballed. It's fortunate that I have a huge interest in rugby and sport in general, and coupled with having a, an auctioneer's um, leaning towards history as well. So the two combinations fascinate me. Rob, as a rugby historian, how high does it rank in importance to have all this coming through Cardiff? Well, I think it just builds on the reputation that Ben's company has started. But of course, you've got some other memorabilia up for auction, I think, on the same day from another great centre a little bit closer to home. Yeah, Dr. Jack. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So lucky enough to have a meeting with Jack's son, Peter, also a doctor, who showed me his collection of rugby jerseys that um, Jack had swapped on his British Lions tour and super items to have in. Also in the Jack Matthews collection are a number of gramophone records, which are of the British Lions tour team singing various songs like Cumronda, Irish and English folk songs, which would be a very amusing thing to hear to see if they're in tune. So what brings the big money? Is it a moment? Is it a person? Is it a controversy? Is it age? How does it combine? And what really gives you the cachet to go on and sell for some of the prices you have to? It's all of those factors, really. Age is probably the top of the list. Pre-war are rare. Victorian, absolutely like hen's teeth. New Zealand is a hotly contested country. So if you have any All Blacks items that, as you know, they're mad about rugby. They're also mad about collecting jerseys and caps. So matches, of course, are important, but the player as well is up there. And if you can identify who the player was and which match, that really ticks the boxes as far as the collectors are concerned. It's incredible that it, even early jerseys, though, that we don't have names to are collected by not the serious collectors, but there are plenty of the middle level collectors out there who just like 
antique jerseys or older rugby jerseys who collect them because they're rugby jersey collectors, not necessarily because they have a story attached, but because they may be a rare jersey or they only used a particular design for a couple of seasons and they go for it. But the serious money, for instance, we sold uh, an All Blacks jersey for 39000 That was John Turtles, who didn't go on the Originals tour because he went to Rugby League. So there was some controversy around his jersey and because it's All Blacks and because we had a couple of caps with it and because it came from the family it made 39,000 and went back to New Zealand. It's a lot of those factors. Age is probably up there. We all now remember the 1971 Grand Slam team, which on the 27th of this month celebrates its 50th anniversary. Wow. So if a shirt from, let's say, Di Morris from yeah. the great win in Stade Colombe in 1971 came up now, is 50 years enough? It's enough for some money. I think if we had the Shadows jersey in, we'd be looking from the 71 Grand Slam, three or 4,000 maybe. I mean, we sold Sir Gareth's jersey from 77, I think it was, and that made 6,000. So they can make serious money, but we're not yeah. talking 20, 30,000, no. I don't think. There are possibly some post-war jerseys that, could make that sort of serious level of money. Richard and I were talking about that the other day. Perhaps Gareth's jersey, when he went over in the corner in the dramatic start against New Zealand, maybe that would make some serious money. When we're talking 20,000, 30,000, they are pre-war. And I can only almost guarantee if I've got a Victorian jersey, a Victorian national jersey, it'll be up there. They are just so rare. An item has to be, in sporting world, it's got to be significant. It's got to be meaningful. I mean, being old is, is good, and, and Ben's absolutely right. Pre-1900, rare as hen's teeth. But otherwise, a sporting item to the big collectors has got to be meaningful. When was that jersey worn? In which match was that cricket bat used? What did that ball do on that day in Adelaide? Those are the questions that the key collectors are asking now. They're looking for significance. Let's try to bring it up to uh, date a little bit more. Gavin Henson's shirt from the England game in 2005, where he carried Matthew Tate like a, a fashion accessory and kicked the penalty to win, and we go on and win the first Grand Slam for 34 years. Thinking about the modern shirts, you know, every player has two. There's 23 in a team. They're all embroidered. They've got so you, it's easy to trace which game they are. Is anything of the last 15 or 20 years going to have much value? It's a very good question. Uh, I would say the 2005 first Grand Slam, Gavin Henson played a big part. There's the iconic tackle. I would have said it's got value, but it may be a good and sensible thing to keep hold of it for a while until it's 50 years old. These things do get hyped up, but they get hyped up at charity auctions. I've conducted charity auctions around the world and uh, where after dinner and somebody's the wrong side of a couple of bottles of red, they start waving their hands when a signed jersey comes up. And you know, it's not unusual for a signed uh, England World Cup um, jersey signed by the squad from uh, 2003 after dinner for Lawrence Devalio's benefit evening 
to make £20,000. You know, those sort of prices I have achieved. Cold light of day when the bidder wakes up the following morning and thinks, Christ, how much did I pay for that? And they give me a call a year or two later. And I said, listen, you know, with Lawrence Delalio who made the money that night, you've got a long wait coming. So some of these prices get built up, I think, on the back of, of benefit auctions and, and, and charities. Uh, but in the cold light of day, the majority of post-war rugby memorabilia yeah, is certainly, it's affordable, Ben, I suppose. It's a nice thing to say to the newer collector, but to the informed collector, they're not interested. There's rugby memorabilia in the walls of every rugby club in Wales. Some of it old, some of it newer, some of it schoolboy caps, some of it some of the greats to have played the game. What would you say to clubs around Wales about the memorabilia they've got on their walls? And are those clubs beginning to think in these times that is worth some money that they need at the moment? You might assume that most of the jerseys we've sold over the years are from clubs, but actually not so many. They mostly have come from families, although we have acted on behalf of clubs in the past. I can understand that the problem in that it is part of the club's heritage, but as these items have escalated in value and and incredibly so in in some quarters they're becoming a liability from them going missing from deterioration in condition in many cases i see jerseys in clubs that are not preserved in the right way they're facing light sunshine coming in through the the summer months and they zap the color out of the jerseys it's becoming a responsibility now with the money involved so I do think that rugby clubs have to think about what is best, not just for them in terms of monetary finance and helping the clubs perhaps fix the roof or whatever they need to do, but also what is the right thing to do in terms of preserving the jerseys. Because I've also dealt with jerseys that have been in terrible condition because they've been neglected in clubs. Of course, not so long ago, there was before the smoking ban cigarette nicotine would would get into them and and they've been awful and they've been important jerseys the clubs really need to be careful and to at least get somebody in to appraise what they have and to give them an option as to what they need to do and what their requirements are who knows what happens tomorrow the market is extremely hot at the moment there is some serious money floating around in the uk and in the southern hemisphere People are hungry for jerseys, but markets change as well. So my advice to rugby clubs would be at least have them appraised and listen to some advice on which to make a decision on. That all makes uh, perfect sense. Um, The time when sport in general is under pressure to have an asset hanging on a wall or even curling up in a cabinet somewhere in the clubhouse when the money could perhaps go to better use is something that perhaps the clubs should consider. Can I um, bring it right up to date? I have here a programme, the Wales-England game of the weekend. Not many of those around. So what would that be worth now? What might it be worth in uh, a few years' time? (laughs) 2,000 print run. Mine came through my door yesterday, so I ordered one online. It cost me £5. I'm not sure the price has gone up since then. But... um, this last 12 months have been a very strange historical year, I guess. 
it may have a bearing on things that were made and created in a difficult and strange time in years to come. I mean, and I suppose there may well be in the future a good market for the COVID year rugby and football programmes. So, come on, fellas, what am I bid for a 1968 Lions badge? Ooh. Well, I'm going to start at 40, 40, go five now, 45, 50, 50, <laughs> bid now, five. At 55 pound, do I see 60 now, 60, at 60 pound, all done, sold. Uh, your badge is just gone, Rob. 60 Sorry about quid. That. It's gone to a good home. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure hearing from everyone. It's been some really interesting stuff. Thanks very much, and good luck with the auction in April. Great pleasure. Thank you. Fascinating stuff, and I guess that Wales England programme from last weekend may need to wait for the grand. So that's it for this week's Welsh Rugby Union podcast. Next week we'll preview the fourth leg of a potential Grand Slam in Wales travel to Italy. But until then, goodbye and stay safe.